BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is author Kathy Unsworth. Welcome to the show. Hello, Stuart. Thank you for having me. The route to this podcast has started with my interview with Nick Triplo, who, after I'd interviewed him, put a link up to your book being reissued by, by Penny Blues. So I liked the sound of it. I got it. I loved it. And then I did the internet thing of, Saying hello on social media to you, and thankfully here we are. I'm I'm not I'm not a weirdo chasing people over the internet. I am just a podcast host looking for interesting people to talk to. <laughs> but it's, it's quite an honour to be recommended by Nick Triplo as well because he's such a brilliant writer himself, and you know his his books are his books are all brilliant, and his, his biography of of this biography of Ted Lewis is is uh, just a masterwork. It is, and, and like I said to him at the time, it's sort of, it's it's sort of one of the things where I'm embarrassed to not know who he is. But obviously, that's the reason he wrote the book is that not enough people do know who he is. Yeah, and it took nine years to do it as well. What dedication is that? And it's interesting that he moved north, and 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 somebody said you should write a book about him. It's like, well, why isn't you think yourself? Why has nobody else done it while I've been wait, while I've been living somewhere else? Because <laughs> it was waiting for him to move to the exact place where Ted came from. I think it's fake. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I didn't know at the time when I got your book that this was this was a reissue and and there's um there's there's a beautiful um forward by Grill Marcus. It's an amazing and I, I was amazed that he wrote that. Um I mean I didn't pay him or anything. And he, it it came out on the Barnes and Noble website. It was the best review I've ever had from Grail Marcus. I mean, blimey. Yeah. So I mean, so so is that literally how it came about? It was his his review was then becomes the... Oh, yeah, he said I could use it as the introduction because I'm not going to get... No one wrote about any of my books in such detail as that before after, or since or after, but the fact that it was him doing it was amazing to me. Obviously, from coming from a music journalist background, I'd read his stuff and I love the way that he makes connections between everything that's going on in the pop culture around the music and how the music affects it and how... Um, the times are affected by pop culture. And I guess that's what I was trying to do in Bad Penny Blues, or certainly how I built my world up in Bad Penny Blues was from pop culture, really. And and the films that we're going to talk about had a huge part in that. Yeah, so so Bad Penny Blues is a 
is a fictional retelling of an unsolved murder that, or series of murders that happened in London. Do you want to give the listener a brief synopsis as to what, what the book is about from your point of view? Yeah, it was a, a, I read a very troubling book called Jack of Jumps by David Seabrook, which was about this case that began, well, it could have begun in 1959 and ended in 1965. There was eight, eight women were murdered, um, and attributed to the same serial killer. Um, they were all, they were all working girls, and they all lived and and or worked around Labrick Grove, which is where I've lived for over thirty years now. And reading reading this book was a kind of revelation to me because I thought I knew this place, but there was so much I didn't know. And that the fact that all these women had been vanished, um, the crime was never solved. I should say this: um, women were killed in a, a really degrading and awful way of the main sequence of them the two the first two um one in 1959 and one in 1963 only the official investigation didn't consider them part of 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 the 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 other sequence of girls were all killed in 1964 and beginning of 1965 in in as a killer sort of escalated his frenzy and these ones where, I mean, they were all killed in horrible ways, but these, the last six, that they're degraded in ways. They're, they're, the killer left them in ways to show, um, to say his contempt and hatred for women, which could be seen, and, and this sort of mockery of women as well. It's a really disturbing and disgusting case. And the fact it was never sold and it was sold and it was the biggest manhunt in the history of the Metropolitan Police, but they still didn't manage to catch this fiend. And the fact it all happened around where I live, sort of, it compelled me to try and write, not to find out who the killer was really at all. It was mainly to give a voice to the people he killed because I felt that they'd been represented in by Jack of Jumps and other books about them in a way that was quite contemptuous as well. And I thought, you know, all of them were somebody's mother, somebody's daughter, somebody's sister. They were all women who didn't really get much chance in life and what little they had was brutally taken away from them. And because they all they all came from these streets that I thought I knew so well and were snatched away to their terrible fates from these streets, I just naively thought, if I start researching, if I if I keep walking these streets, their stories will come to me, and, and in a way they did. And and what I learned, and what 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 I could find about them, and what I could find out about the world that was going on around them in Labrick Grove in that time period became the book Bad Penny Blues, a kind of seance for them, if you will, and in a sort of parallel Labrick Grove because I I've, I've changed everybody's names, and there are not many people in there who go by their real names um, at all, apart from Colin Wilson, who I thought he, this would be his milieu anyway. He looked, he, he always wrote about outsiders and serial killers. Though I don't think he'd mind his little walk-on part <laughs> in the book, but it was because Labrick Grove also was a place of cheap rents in those days. And so art students lived there, writers lived there. Um, as we'll see represented in, in the films, really, it mm. was, a really good place um if you you know it was a sort of outlaw place i think um it's um 
in that in the classic book of the time, um, Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes, he always refers to it as our Napoli, like a sort of mafioso. But also, it doesn't look English here. All these tall houses do remind you of Italy and just this sort of weird gangsterish, not on the level world that they all lived in was was something really important to the flavour of the book as well and, and Colin McInnes's world. So trying to step inside that world, if you will, and see who lived there and you know who else lived alongside these people. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. But before we get before we go on to the films, I'm fascinated by the idea of taking a real story and turning it mm. and turn it into a work of fiction. How how do you how do you walk that line between the facts of the well, case I, and real history and you creating a work of fiction around all that? Well. I really was inspired by David Peace's Red Riding books, and I talked to him a lot about how he did that. And he, his basic approach was, it's he called it method writing, and that's kind of what I did myself. It's basically you get read all the, the newspaper reports you can of, of the time, and and all the all the books that have been written about that case. But you don't just do that; you watch all the films that were popular at the time as much TV as you can, you read the contemporary pulp paperbacks, you look at old magazines, you look at the fashions, you, you kind of, as we'll talk about the pop artists, as the pop artists built their, some of their work up from collages, snapshots, you sort of keep doing this until eventually you suddenly find yourself in the world and you know, you sort of, it feels like you've stepped into that world when, mm. when you started writing it feels like you've sucked, sucked into that time tunnel. And that's how it felt for me. I would be writing and look up and go, oh my God, the world is in colour. Because in my head, it was this black and white world yeah. that I'd reached through these films. And and the, one of the, my starting points was I looked up what song was number one when each of the women's body was found. And that gave me the soundtrack. Oh. And when I could hear, because I think, don't you think singles particularly, well, all records are time tunnels anyway. Yeah. What's what's captured on the vinyl is that moment forever when these people were made. So they are they are effectively opening the time tunnel. For, that's how I felt. Well, it's interesting to. you say that. I, I've just done um, a screenplay set in 1991, 92, about a fictional black yeah. metal band from Norway that, goes, to have, the, that goes, goes into the woods of Finland to record an album. And... I I did a timeline of the real evolution of black metal, but yeah. then inserted my fictional band into that timeline so I could understand where we were in the evolution of the genre. <laughs> that is exactly the sort of thing. That's what I did with the mm. book I wrote okay, before okay. this. This when I did the singer, I invented a whole history of the bands that were in that and yeah. what number they got into the indie charts and when they were on John Peel and things like. No, I think it's really helpful to kind of insert your version of reality into reality. And I do think that listening to the music really. Obviously, we love music, but mm. listening to the music does really help. Because so you just think these were the sounds that these people heard as they were going from the coffee bars to from the pubs, just transistor radios and doorways. This is the music of the time, and it, it, it helps you to, and, and it helps you to, they'll have phrases that people will use, slang, mm. you know, and the films help with that as well. And yeah, it all helps to time travel, doesn't it, really? Indeed. No, and it's, 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 it's a really easy, biography of life isn't it music you just, 
you've either got your own biases and understanding, and then you you can then once you see a bit like what you're talking before about what Grill Marcus does, it's like you can really draw nodal points from music. I mean, my my friends have just finished a documentary on Chris Farlow. Chris Farlow will forever be at number one when England won the World Cup, which is just it's 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 not it's it, it's a singular fact. It's kind of it'll never change. It's like that's the sound you can play that song and you play in the World Cup final, and it's it's the same thing. No, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and that the, the some of the songs that were number ones, you know, the House of the Rising Sun was once, which is so ominous. Mm. And but but even things like You'll Never Walk Alone, which we think, oh, that's a nice little you know, a heartwarming song from a musical from the football terraces. I've sung it many times at Liverpool. (laughs) Exactly. You know, that's what you think of, first of all, the the cop choir singing, but it's not so lovely if you're a girl walking on your own through the streets of London with a serial colour on your tail. So even the most sort of heartwarming song like that suddenly took on a sinister aspect and things like The Night Has a Thousand Eyes. Yeah, good Lord. Yes, yes. Can't buy me love. All these songs and she's not there. Oh, spooky soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. That none of that's made up. That's just how it was, like you say. Kind of writes itself, then, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> now, when I ask this of documentarians when they come on, but obviously you—it's a book, and but you've done obviously a lot of what what documentarians would do since your research. What for you was the, was was the big surprise about what you perceived about the world you were entering and what you discovered about about this this portion of history and because as you were drilling down in quite specific stuff as well as the sort of general nodal points. Yeah. What, what for you was a big surprise from what you perceived of then? What what a really big surprise was how the post war rebuild um, sort of destroyed more almost as much. Um, of the architecture of London as the Luftwaffe had managed during the Blitz and and how it wasn't, the rebuild wasn't so much to do with, the you know, getting good houses for people who'd been bombed out as it was for property developers to move in and make as much money as they possibly could, which is another subject that hasn't really changed. Um, I think one of the really scary resonances about this story is that it's all to do with um you know a lot of the tensions in Labrick Grove is obviously like you alluded to earlier because the Windrush generation mm. one of one of the few landlords who would house them was Peter, was Peter Rackman who has gone down in history associated with the craze and Christine Keeler um, but he was and he used the one in the dictionary with the bad name for slum housing but he mm. was actually the only only a Polish Jewish man who would walk across Europe because his family had been killed in half by the Russians and half by the Nazis was prepared to give these incoming West Indian families, you know, a room in Labrick Grove. So that it scares me now that there's still that whole thing. And this this is really resonant in the first film in Beat Girl, actually. So maybe I should save some of that for that, but how you know, Grenfell Tower, that housing problem for poor people and how they're treated by the rich people of this borough, Mm. you know, that it hasn't gone away. It's become an atrocity, which is still, you know, there's been no justice for the people in Grenfell Tower. Absolutely. No, no. In in, in a past life I've worked, I've worked in social housing. I'm I'm, I'm aware of its, uh, 
it's failings and not not it's not through trying it's just through the fact that government policy isn't has got no incentive to um to build more more affordable housing there is developers don't need more supply because that that brings price down but it is for me that's you know it's what doesn't that's the psychogeography mm. I, the whole idea of it the same crimes will go on being repeated in the same way in the same area and that that's kind of that's it hasn't stopped here because there is beautiful houses for rich people here and they don't want literally don't want to see the poor people mm. you know that's something that happened so you asked me something that surprised me and that it's it's that's a I suppose it's it's a shock, but it, maybe it isn't a surprise because it's just the psych, it's just the same thing that's always afflicted. Well, I, I watched um I watched the Jack the Ripper Jack the Yorkshire Ripper um documentary on Netflix a couple of weeks ago, which is a while after I've read your book. And it, it's interesting the parallels between the police's response to prostitutes being killed in that and obviously what your recording in your in your book it's sort of there's a and that you think you think there's 20 odd years between those two sorry there's 15 years isn't there between the murders and yet mm. nothing has advanced at all with how the police were and you've you recently i forget the author's name the the five women the book about victims of jack the ripper where for the first time yeah. somebody had decided that let's stop making jack the ripper famous let's actually recall the women's, li- the women's yeah. lives yeah. it's uh, I think that for me, that's the kind of the opening stuff for me is that once we start looking at who 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 dies, and we begin to see it's the the real horror of murder, as opposed to just a headline on the news that somebody's died and isn't it a shame? And then somebody will will give them a tag, which is meant to make the the death less of yeah. a problem, you know, kind of thing. No, it's like my hero of, of crime fiction Derek Raymond said he wanted to lift the carpet and show you exactly what was in there in more sweary terms than that he put it. <laughs> but you know I just think if I can that's why in the book I've got these little monologues from each of the women just before they die mm. which come in a sort of dream sequence thing to yeah. one of my characters characters Stella who picks them up psychically picks them up which was the only way I could think of doing it really um but they it's trying to condense their lives so you can literally walk in their shoes in the last few minutes that they have and see the layers of their lives falling away and their hopes and dreams that they had just before it's and then I think maybe if I can do that maybe people will have more empathy and understanding and you know I, I think but you know I hope that would be the case but it worked as far well as me as one as one audience member reading your book it certainly worked for me because yeah. because you you made you made the central character part of us discovering about these victims that we didn't know anything about as opposed to needing to switch focus and take us into yeah. just, like here's a story of some woman getting murdered and and then back to the other story yeah. about what it's like living as an art student in London you kind of come you conflated the two and made them integral as, as yeah I had Pete the policeman to be the sort of head of the story so mm. he's investigating and and he isn't a corrupt copper he's one of the I'm sure there are many people who enter the police force to try and do good things. Peter Bradley, and, the, the year yeah, in, a year he, into his job, as it were. 
Yeah. So he's so he can show you what's happening. He can show you inside the investigation. He can, you know, but Stella is the heart. Stella is the art student who gets the dreams. Mm. So she can actually show you inside, you know, what happened. She's the conduit to what happens to these girls. And, and Stella and Pete never meet despite living streets away from each other in this same small part of West London. But they both can tell half the story. And I thought, you know, that's, that's how... That's how I can merge both of the elements. Of the yeah, story. and that 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 element of them sort of sli- the sliding doors of their lives. Is, yeah, because I can't. I mean, I did. I mean, not not to spoil it for someone who hasn't read the book yet, but that idea that they don't ever cross paths was was quite was quite brilliant. Um, yeah, I thought it would be really more. I thought it'd be cheesy if they did meet because mm. it's you know, real life isn't. You know, there's, there's. I've lived here for thirty years. There's loads of people I've never crossed, never met <laughs> who live, who's lived here for all that time. So, you know, I think, yeah. Anyway, maybe if they did meet, the world would have imploded. Anyway, indeed. Well, look, Bad Penny Blues is out now. Is is reissued? Is it reissued by Strange Attractor? Press? Strange Attractor. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, look, we're going to do five films that that have an influence on Bad Penny Blues, which is. Which is really exciting. I was I was genuinely excited when you said you were up for it, and then you sent me the list. I was like, "Shit, I've not seen any of these." And so, <laughs> so, so that became its own challenge in of itself, and it's been a real, it's been a lovely discovery for me just to see these films, and and it makes a lot of sense in terms of of having read the book. But before before we do, I'll just explain for the listener coming to this cold. This this yeah. is this is a we're going to do five minutes on each of these five on each of these five films. I'm going to do them in reverse date order, oldest to newest. Uh, I'll announce the film and then, and then Kathy will begin talking about it and we'll have a conversation around, around what she's saying. And, and, and I'm guessing there's going to be bits where you're going to say this directly influenced the book or this was a vibe and whatever else. And then when the five minutes are up and we hear the sound of a dog, that's my attempt to draw a line under that film because I can't interrupt people. Um, and it forces us to move on. Obviously, I'll there'll be there'll be a grace to sort of finish a thought if you want to. But if you choose to just stop, you can do. I won't. I won't. I won't make you. Um, it's um, it's just it's a bit of fun and a bit of jeopardy to uh, to add to it. But um, yeah, if you're ready, I'm ready. I'm ready. Clock's ticking. Let's start with 1960s Beat Girl, also known as Wild for Kicks. Yeah, now this is where my story started. My first film that I want, it, it, I first saw it on Alex Cox's band season, which he used to have hmm. um, when, um, when BBC Two did that. And it's basically, I say, a heady cocktail of beatniks, property developers and strippers, mixing it in Soho to the sounds of the John Barry Seven. So it opens with Oliver Reed frogging wildly down a base, basement club in Soho in black and white, which is, you know, a better way for any film to start, I can't <laughs> imagine. But basically the character, the central character, in my, in my book I've got a Jenny um, who, who is this blonde girl that I, I, I cooked her up from somewhere and I thought part of her, um, she is basically in my book, she's, this, she's like the femme fatale, but there's so much mystery to her, but she started off, as being Jenny Linden in Beat Girl, who oh, was wow. played by G- who was played by Gillian Hills, who was known as the English Bardot, and she, and 
But her character, really interestingly, her her father in the film is an architect, mm. and he's he's busy constructing this sort of city two thousand. He calls it awful, an awful vision. My goodness, a horrible, brutalist vision yeah. from while he while he's living in a mansion in Kensington, <laughs> and it, so much of of my story is about the sort of re. Um, the rebuilding of in the post-war years and and the interests that architects had in that um, that she sort of merged she merges with Pauline Beatty who will come to later but that was the although I love all the sort of teenage kicks bit of this film with Beat Girl and her friends who include Shirley Ann Field and and Adam Faith as well as Oliver Reed and their exploits that so I do think that Stanley Kubrick probably had a little gander at this film because some of the things they do, like when they're playing chicken on the railway line, you can see a bit of that in the droogs in Clockwork Orange, some of the racing through the countryside. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, almost the I same. So, yeah. And there's also a brilliant bit with Christopher Lee's strip club in Soho um, where Beat Girl wants to be a stripper and she auditions. And Christopher Lee is really sinister in this. And He's a right friend, bastard, Christopher Lee. He, he is a right bastard. You wanted to see me? There was a young girl in here last night, seeing Greta. And? Leave her alone. Oh. May I ask who you are? Her stepmother. So that's what Nicole looks like. You've come up in the world, haven't you? I can come down to your level if I have to, Mr. King. So just listen to me. That child comes in here again, you're going to send her home. And if I don't? I'll tell my husband. He'll go straight to the police. But my friend Max had this brilliant, Max Charnay, he had this brilliant story of how Christopher Lee was simultaneously filming this film and a film called Too Hot to Handle with Jane Mansfield on, on sound stages next to each other. No. And in one... He was a strip club owner in both, and in one film he had a pencil moustache and the other he didn't. And that's, that's how he... He could differentiate between which strip club only he was playing. And Max said he did interview him about this once. Dear boy, yes, you're right. I did do that. So, that is phenomenal. Yeah. So anyway, that was the reason. I love the music. I love the John Barry music. And, and, and Adam Faith is in one of his songs, is a couple of his songs mm. actually, with John, yeah, yeah. with John Barry doing the orchestration are on the soundtrack for Bad Penny Blues as well. So... I thought that was the thing I love these these beatniks, this sort of faux beatnik world, and the sinister property developers world. Yeah, the the, the, the existential crisis of the of the young beatniks didn't make a whole lot of sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and also, the other thing that is so hilarious is Adam Faith's character is trying to be really hard, <laughs> and then and you know he could he can like threaten a girl but then when some Ted's turn up he just runs away <laughs> well he, he's he's a, he's a not a, he doesn't fight into the squares he keeps saying Drink yeah it. it's, fighting it. it's quite interesting that 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 idea of the, the rebel having no rebellious tendencies beyond being into jazz I mean in 1960 was jazz that much of a thing that it was seen as the oh. poison well, there were jazz wars. I know that there were jazz wars between the trads and the beatniks, and this is Colin McInnes sort of goes into this, but there's also this brilliant book called Baron, Baron's Court or Change hmm. by Terry, uh, Terry, I'll think of his name in a minute, 
but it recently got reissued by Five Leaves Publishing. And this was the book that Colin McInnes got totally into when he did Absolute Beginners. And it, it, it ah, talks okay. about these, these trad wars that they had in Soho between the old school beatniks and the new, new fave existentialist mods. There we go. There's the dog back. Do you want to finish your thought there? Yeah, so I'm just, yeah, so the jazz walls were important in those days. Yeah. <laughs> it's the end of my thought. Like the like the, like, was, like the psychobillies and rockabillies fighting in my my hometown when I was a kid. Exactly. Yeah. It was Ackerbilk versus Miles Davis. My word. I know what side I'm sort on there. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> Now the next the next one is is a is a is a is a I guess you would call it a do, a reality TV show in 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 today's parlance. But this is this is quite a piece of work. This is Pop Goes the Easel, directed yes. by Ken Russell and featuring four um, four pop artists in it. And I sent I sent it yes. to a friend of mine because I was blown away by it. He's a, he's an art he's an artist now, and he he lectures up at University of Central Lancashire. And he said to me, he said, it's funny, it's sort of fake early establishment marketing of a fabricated English pop art scene. And I thought, that's amazing. I hadn't even thought about it that way before. But do you want to talk about its influence on you and your book? Yeah, well, the influence, the reason I really got into this was because as I was writing this Jenny character, and as Mm. I say, she started off being Jenny from Beat Girl with her architect dad. Then a friend of mine called Dave Knight, who is a brilliant musician. Yeah. And really interested in art, actually. He said, I was started telling him about this, and he went, it's not what Jenny from Bootkill, it's Pauline I've always had very vivid dreams, and I can remember them very, very easily. And I've used the kind of atmosphere of the dreams in my collages. I think there are two things about this. And one is that I often take the moment before something has actually happened, and you don't know if it's going to be terrible, or it might be very funny. The other thing is that something very extraordinary is actually happening and yet everyone around isn't taking any notice of it at all. And I didn't even know who Pauline Bowie was. And he gave me a CD back in the days when he ripped CDs off. And it, somebody had posted a whole book about Pauline Bowie that they'd written online and couldn't at the time get it published. And it was amazing. She lived here in Labrick Grove. She went to the Royal College of Art. She looked very much like Jenny Linden, as you will see in um, if you watch Pop Goes which is available on iPlayer, yeah. which I checked before. Yeah, 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 it's amazing. You, you can you can just access that and watch it. Um, and she, Peter Blake was in love with her. She was absolutely brilliant. She did these beautiful collages and paintings, and you know she was very funny and ironic. And my favourite one of her titles was she. Nick the James Brown song, it's a man's 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 world, because you know, she was. Um, I did you know, looking into what it was like for a girl to be at art college in this time, because my mum could have got into the Slade at this time. She had an interview and she could have been in this world, but my grandma burnt her portfolio and wouldn't let her go. Oh so God. part of my inspiration was what if my mum had been here at this time, which she could have been. Mm. And it, it was very much like I read this book called Diary by Kate Paul, who was a, a student in London at the time as well. And one of her tutors said, all you girls are here just to be a bit of entertaining fluff on the arms of the serious male artists. My word. And this is 
perhaps why we don't remember Pauline Boaty as much as we remember Peter Blake or Derek Boucher, mm. who are also in this documentary. But also the other really tragic thing is because Pauline Boaty died when she was only 26. She got a rare form of leukemia while she was pregnant, so she couldn't have any treatment and she died. Good Lord. So she's this beautiful, tragic woman. And if you, I'm sure the bit that you probably enjoyed the most from watching the film was seeing them purfrogging wildly in the basement jazz cellar with David Hockney. David Hockney. Yeah, and her lovely smile when she dances, she's just so beautiful and she lights up. We can see while they're all. And the other, other, so I found out about her. The more I found out about her, the weirder it got. The house where she lived literally backs onto the house where I live here. No. So she lived in in the house directly behind me. And I she was also part of a campaign against the post-war rebuild, these anti-uglies, the anti-uglies. She was the, one of the leaders of this campaign, and they went and picketed all these new buildings that were going up. And one of them was Kensington Town Hall, which was where underneath where one of the victims was found, yeah. a serial killer, was that was came a dump site for her. And so she was like at the same time, she and John Betjeman, who also did a big campaign against this, they managed to save quite big areas of London from being knocked down and turned into City 2000. So there again is another really strange parallel between that I didn't know when I started writing. Yeah. But which came to me. It is it is amazing, isn't it? When 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 you put your radar onto something, what what other signals you pick up that you just couldn't imagine? And that idea of the house backing on the part of the campaign to stop the redevelopment happening. And I had also had this other weird experience that after I'd found all this out. I was walking down Westbourne Grove one day and mm. I saw this load of people with big placards, like a 50 style protest, and it said, no more ugly on the placard. And I was like, oh my God, I'm seeing a time slip. It's Pauline. <laughs> her, it's Pauline and her crew. And I ran up to it and then underneath ugly, it just had furniture and it was just a demo for it. It was like a promo, promotional thing for a, for a furniture shop. But it was like streets away from me and Pauline's respective houses just like round the corner and it was using her work on a placard a very 50s early 60s oh, really? method of protest so yeah it's almost like she sort of come back through the time hole i feel i feel really daft now because obviously i didn't i didn't make that initial when I, oh i'll finish me, me, me when i when i read you when i was reading your book and then and then then watching this thing i was just i was so astonished that there was a female <laughs> pop artist from that time, yeah, that that just took all my attention. I'd even I'd even make the parallel with your book when I was when I watched it the other day because it because to me I don't, I don't I, you know like you say they don't, there isn't there isn't a, there isn't really a mention of of, of female artists sort of in the sixties. Um, no, you know we've we've obviously had we've obviously had a lot of a lot a lot come out of the the the, the YBAs. That's you know it's, it's perfectly normal, but it was that was the fascinating thing where Ken Russell was pointing his camera. It was yeah. it was a real it was a really interesting insight, and it it always whenever I see anything like that, certainly. And have have you read uh, Mimi Scala's book, uh, Diary of a Teddy Boy? No, I haven't. I, I should. It's because he because he talk he he describes that whole Soho and Mayfair scene, and 
because he's from like a working class background, it's it sort mm. of describes it as a, as a sort of a little moment where everything was level. You know, as long as you can afford to go out, you could be knocking around with the Earl of whoever's son, go to a party where Salvador Dali is entertaining you in Mayfair, and still get up for work in the morning. You know, it wasn't it wasn't that in set, it wasn't that exclusive. It was all everyone was discovering at the same time. It was all up for grabs. It's really interesting, this little time period. And it's the same in the punk time as mm. well, I think. Just for a minute, it, the working class kids opened up this portal with their talents. And, and yeah, and it was all up for grabs. It was a real mixing pit pot. And, and that's another thing about Labrick Road, that you would, you know, an Earl would be dancing with a Ted and it all would be going on. And you know, part of the strange milieu of this book is is that very thing. And a lot of the things that brings them together is illicit sex, be it homosexuality, which we're going about to come to in another film, mm. or kinky sex, which obviously the lords were very into. And um, a lot of the girls in, who were murdered were, well, a good proportion of them were involved in this sort of kinky party scene as well. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an it's it. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that wasn't in bed of the sixties. That was obviously look, that that kind of treating treating. Pe- yeah, that's a a tradition they were holding on to, and I guess the modern the modern pop pop world, as it were, was exposing them to the like. Obviously, as the Profumo affair eventually did. Yeah. Well, look, nineteen sixty two. We're going to stay in for yeah the L shaped room. Do you want to tell us about this oh. and where this fits in with your with the book? This is an amazing adaptation of Lynn Reed Banks' amazing novel mm-hmm. um, by Brian Forbes, who is my favourite director of this period and I think was really unjustly neglected in the canon of, you know, of, of these films from this time, which is a really fertile period for British cinema history mm. anyway. But it, Saturday night and Sunday morning always gets talked about, Taste of Honey always gets talked about. Brian Forbes' films not not so much and I don't really know why because they're all really beautiful um but this one in particular Lynn Reed Banks novel is brilliant but strangely enough even though I did get to meet her I had the really good fortune because I wrote about this book for a book called London Fictions mm. and we had a l- little do and she came which was the oh, she's sitting right in front of me <laughs> but she did and she really enjoyed what I wrote about her book thank god and yeah. it was a real honour to meet her. But she did say that the book, although it was inspired by a house she went to in Ludbrook Road, which was a quite notorious house where Colin Wilson lived with um, Laura Del Rivo, another great novelist from this period, and where the two fighting up Roberts, Colleen and McBride, the two Scottish artists who were legends of Soho, they'd all lived there and, and so had the actor Dudley Sutton. So and a lot of it was inspired by that, but she actually set it in Fulham, um, in North End Road. Mm. But Brian Forbes took it back to Leopard Grove. No, 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 just a minute, dear. We're just getting to the interesting part. Yeah, shut up a minute and turn that thing off, place it like a bedlam. I'd be stupid at watching it. Who are? Oh, you're watching it, are you, dear? Well, you sit down, Charlie, at your age. Listen, I was at your age last night and you didn't grumble, did you, eh? If we shut up in bed, we can see the sea. Are you all right, love? We'd like another one. You're going on a long journey, definitely a journey over water, but there's a silver lining at the end of it. Woo! 
wait a minute, this is interesting. Oh, Blondie, come oh, on, let's have yes, a sing song. All right, but not from you. Mavis, you give us a song. Yeah, come on, Mavis. What's that, dear? Well, give us one of your songs. Doris has been telling me. No, I couldn't do that now. Of course you could. I haven't got me props. Well, I'll get them for you. Oh, go on, Mavis. Anything to shut you up. Go on, Mavis. Yes, come on, Mavis. Don't let the profession down. You really want me to? Of course we do. Do you? Well, I... Well, all right. I've got to get something first. Now then, what's another drink before she comes back? Well, I'll have one. Not you. Sonia? How's your glass, dear? I knew there was something I wanted to say. Where's Toby? I haven't seen him. He's uh, lying down, I think. He wasn't feeling very well. What's he got? Morning sickness? <laughs> Don't mind me, dear. I've had one over the eight. You've had eight over the eight, you lovely bit of grub oh, you. Charlie! Oh, it's Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> Ta-da! This is a genius, because this is one of those, they were quite prevalent at the time, sort of boarding house stories, where, so in every room is somebody who represents the social mix that we've just been talking about. There's, um, a West Indian jazzer, mm. Johnny. There's an aging thespian, um, and there's a couple of prostitutes in the basement, and an angry young man writer played by Tom Bell, and the the main um, Leslie Caron's ca- uh, character, who is um, she's an un- about to become an, an unmarried mother. She's concealing the fact that she's pregnant. And she's been kicked out of her house because she's not married. And she she's going to have the baby. And she goes, the only person who will give her a room is, is this the amazing Avis Bunnage, who is sort of a regular cast member of Brian Forbes's film, this quiet, nasty, you know, northern she is actually. Northern landlady comes complete with rolling pin. <laughs> and uh, and she, you know, she has this this horrible louse-ridden L-shaped room in this carved-up house. But she becomes friends with the jazzer Johnny and, and Tom Bell, um, the, the uh, angry young man, right? And she sort of has, starts to form a romantic attachment to him. And she, she basically, in her journey through pregnancy to the baby being born, this becomes her surrogate family. And... There's just some really fantastic, it's really amusing and beautiful. And Cecily Courtenage, there's a bit in that that you can hear at the beginning of, of The Queen is Dead by the Smiths. Obviously, Morrissey was a big fan of all of these um, mm. films and, and lines from these films make their way into a lot of Smith stuff. And that one starts off with her singing Take Me Back to Dear Old Blighty, which is what she does on Christmas Day to entertain the troops and in her... and in her uh, army uniform. Um, uh, and yes, it's, I just think it's, it really captures the sort of the hopes and dreams of that time and like, how all these outsiders come together and sort of make a friend, make friendships out of, you know, they, maybe they would never have met in any other part of London. And I think that Lynn Reed Banks was, she didn't quite like the adaptation because it, he, the girl in her book was was an English girl and she, you know, and it was a largely to do with her and her father's broken relationship as well. But he just took all that out and he made Leslie Caron a sort of, you know, a stranger in a strange land as well. Mm. Um, but in a way that makes it better because they would only, I think, all those characters have come together in that time, in that place. And 
you know, there's a brilliant bit in it when they go to see uh, Johnny playing. And it's again, it's John Barry doing the music. So there's a brilliant scene in what they would have called a mushroom club where you know, the West Indian incomers started having these little clubs to raise rent money. Oh, no. Go finish your thought. Finish your thought. Go on. <laughs> yeah, to raise the money for their Rackman slums, they would have these parties and they, you know, and got called mushroom clubs or shabins or um, blues. And he recreates one of these. And that's my favourite scene in the club. It's brilliant. It starts with Johnny raising up his 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 trumpet to play. Mm. And that scene is um, there's a little homage to that in the, in the, the uh, Absolute Beginners film, that bit where Johnny picks up his trumpet and you just see into the trumpet. And so it, that's brilliant as well. That's a, another Labrador Grave link. I think I think the way you describe it, and this is one of the films I didn't get to see before we spoke, but listening to what you're describing, it's it's doing that. I think it, it's something that, that, that doesn't happen too often, unfortunately, where... Where we show people who are surviving, essentially, there's no aspiration to what they're doing. They're surviving, but yeah, it's, but, they it's, are. but it, but it's, but that that isn't a life of misery. Survival is actually a positive thing. If 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 you're if you're not if you don't think you deserve anything more, I'm not I'm not saying anyone's sort of at their station or anything. But if your lot is that, then then going to watch a, a jazz performance is a bit of joy out of that miserable life yeah. and so that becomes how you adding those bits of color to your life or going to yeah. a mush, going to one of the mushroom club things would have been a little a little let off from from what is the mundanity of what what you've got to do and that's i think they're that they're they're important stories i think to to be telling because often what we see is very middle class portrayals and points of view of of, of how, yeah. how, how, how certainly how london operates um, i know and they're all I suppose I might be being a bit romantic, but they're all young enough to dream hmm. as well. And so Johnny can play jazz and he is really good at it. And Tom Bell can, he is writing and he is, you know, yeah. good at it. And they, they, but that's the, that's the other thing that was really sad for me was that people in my book who had something to go to in London, like they had a place in art college, they had, hmm. They, they arrived and they could come in from the provinces because no one's really from London in the book. They've all come from elsewhere. They're yeah, all yeah, like incomers yeah. and outside. But but the girls who were murdered, they were kind of running away from home and, and turning up. All of them come from the, from the provinces as well. And they all just turn up, like call them a mystery in the parlance of the day with just what they can take in a small case and, often has not met off the trains by pimps who put them, give them the idea that they're going to give them this glamorous world in, in films and art. And, you know, mm. maybe they start off hostessing in the club, but sooner or later they're just, you know, put to work on their backs. And so that was the also, there was, it was a time of really hope after the war and society was getting up and running again. And the young people in the Ken Russell film have got such a lot going on for them and it's so exciting. But these, the, the girls who became the victims are the same age, coming from the same places, but they didn't have any love in their lives, I guess. Yeah, no, well, I mean, not not not, not nearly as extreme as the, the difference between the people at art school and the people who were murdered by murdered in your story is that I remember taking my dad down Carnaby Street when 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 we first moved to London twenty years ago, and my dad's from Liverpool, so you know he grew up with the Beatles and and whatnot. Yeah, and and it meant nothing to him. 
Because I mean, I'm, I'm thinking it's the sixties. It must it must be important. And it was like he said, I never came here. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like he he would have he would probably wouldn't have even seen Carnaby Street probably till the seventies in in all reality. No, it's such, and it's and also the other thing is that London was such a small world then, and mm. now it's, you know, that's why Barry Miles a really great person from this time who I've had the pleasure of meeting a number of times, and he, you know, he was had the Indica Gallery where John met Yoko, and he knew the Beatles and the Stones, and he he knows everyone, but he just basically said that it was easy to know everyone in those days because London was so small. Mm. If you're involved in a certain arty bit of it, you are going to meet everybody. Yeah, well, that's definitely the picture I get from Mimi Scala's book. It's certainly that idea of if you went out, you'd meet people. It wasn't, yeah, because because nobody there was no rules to it because we hadn't we hadn't invented youth culture at that point. <laughs> no, and it was yeah, it was all there was loads of cheap clubs to go to, and you know nothing cost loads of money, and people were making it up as they went along, like. Skiffle is like punk, isn't it? It's like here's a washboard, it's a bit of string, and and a packing crate. Go form a band. <laughs> well, look, this this the, the next film we're going, jumping up to 1964 for Seance on a Wet Afternoon, directed. By, oh yes, we love that. Yeah, another Brian Forbes. <laughs> I'm very grateful for, uh, for for being introduced to this one. It was, uh, and obviously the the link between Kim Stanley's character and your central character in, in Bapani Blues being a medium is. Is very is very close, but but what else? What else is it about about sounds on a wet afternoon that that sort of? T- uh, it's it's just that it's so creepy, mm. and um, yeah, I did. The spiritualists are in my book because, um, like I said to you earlier, I did want to be able to have some way of accessing the dead girls, mm. and I thought, you know, spiritualism. When my book first came out, people were saying to me, like, what is this spiritualism? People seem to know a lot more about it. I don't know if it's because we've just lived through a global pandemic, but it doesn't, this time around, that aspect of it doesn't seem so much of a problem to people as it did the first time my book came out. People seem to be a little bit more open now we lived through a time of real uncertainty and death stalking our heels and our world's being turned upside down. Yeah. I think, I, you know, I had spiritualists in my family and it was in and across the North and Midlands. I think it was quite, you know, it was more prevalent than it was in the South, but it, it wasn't so weird to me because I had old ladies in my family who, who could do these things. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, so, and I always sort of kept an open mind about it because so many weird things happened to me while I was writing this. It almost was like saying, you know, don't give up on this aspect of it. But anyway, and also the other really interesting thing I think is spiritualists still appear in books up to this point that have been written at the time, you know, um, and they're in Baron's Court, all, all change starts with him. He goes to see a spiritualist to try mm. and get kicks, basically. And they're all in all Graham Greene's books. There's lots of Lots of spiritualist activity in Brighton Rock. There is some in, in um, Night, Night of, of the Fear. Night of the Demon. It's a key scene. The the going to see the medium is a is a key point, yeah. point in the film. That's like nineteen fifty nine, and it almost it sort of dies out when spiritualism goes respectable, and when the world comes into Technicolor, which I think is when you know the Beatles help. Maybe when the Beatles go into Technicolors, the rest of the world does, and then. The spiritualists are banished back into the black and white corners and into the shadow. But the creepiest 
evocation of them ever is in seance in a wet afternoon mm. and what they get what they get up to. It's um it's Dickie Attenborough at his and you know how he's so good at being creepy and this is him at his very creepiest. Excuse me, are you Mr. Clayton's chauffeur? Yes. The, the headmistress, Miss Bray, she's got a letter for you to give to Mr. Clayton. Oh, thank you. Oh, no, 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 I, I, I haven't got it. She wants to give it to you in person. Oh, right. See you in a tick, Amanda. And he's got his wife, is Myra, which is also creepy because in the same year, a real woman called Myra is going to start spiriting children away. Yes, yes, of course. And I don't think, and I don't think anyone's ever been given that name since, actually. But basically, this Myra's idea is to kidnap the daughter of a wealthy couple so she can assist the police in their inquiries by psychically knowing where she is and making a name for herself. But she's actually really, she's quite unhinged for reasons that I shouldn't say. Yes. Because it would be a plot spoiler. Mm. Um, And she basically gets Dickie to kidnap this young girl who was the daughter of Nanette Newman in the film. And they hold her in, in their gloomy old house, um, pretending she's in hospital. That she did, did the abduction scene is palm drenchingly, and it is for Dickie as well because he knows he's doing wrong. Um, and the whole relationship between and apparently in the DVD version I've got, there's a really great interview done by a guy called Lancelot Narayan. Yeah. He interviews um, Brian Forbes about this, and he does say that. Kim Stanley and Dickie could not get on in real life, and you can see this in the film. But what he also says is so weird and so brilliant. When he was out scouting for locations for the gloomy pile that they live in, he found this house and he knocked on the door and he said to the woman, I, you know, I'm making a film. And she said, oh, he's in it. And he said, Dickie Attenborough, she knew who, obviously. And he said, this American actress that you probably won't have heard of called Kim Stanley. And she went, she was my roommate when we lived in New York together. Gowerton. And now she lives in the, no, and she lived in the, and the house has got this, the creepy room where they do the seance. Mm. was apparently, apparently where somebody had committed suicide in this room. So there's, there's all this, I was led to the, so yeah, it's so interesting. He was led to this house. In, it was somewhere in South London, actually. And, you, and you're right. You, the, the whole kidnap scene is, 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 He's like the, the most awkward kidnap scene I've ever because he's not he's not an he alpha male character. He's not an alpha male character. He's he's completely sort of led by the nose by Kim Stanley's character. And uh, yeah. Oh, then there goes the dog. Uh Kim Stan Kim Stanley's character who is he can't say no to. And yet Yeah. But but once he's got once he's got the girl, he, then you become tense for him because you're like it's that weird, real flip where you, so you, 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 you. We don't know the girl. She's just a character at that point. She's got no. We don't. She's got no personality. We get to learn that later. So it becomes about will he get away with it at this point yeah. in the film? Because we're not. We don't think of them as being particularly evil beyond what the, beyond the kidnapping. But you don't know where the film's going at that point. No, it's so creepy. And interestingly, another thing that Brian Forbes said about that was he had initially he wanted to make the, it. It was going to be two men doing the kidnapping, and it was going to be 
two men in a relationship, and he'd originally envisaged oh, wow. Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness and Tom Courtney, he originally oh, But that was going too far, because that, you know, it wasn't for another three years that that would be legal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For those two men to be shown being in a relationship with each other. So, yeah. But I think he found the perfect person in Kim Stanley to do that. And also, I would just like to say, I think the people in Psychoville have seen this film as well. There's, there's two characters very much like Dickie and Kim Indeed. in Psychoville. No, no, I think and you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right. Now, jumping, we're jumping at, at, at what I, re- I didn't realise what we were talking about. So, yeah, we're jumping ahead of the timeline of your, of your film with the, yeah. with the final one. Which is uh, the killing of Sister George, which is a X certificate, as it as it boldly states on the poster, because and, yes. and what is now, I guess, a a classic of queer cinema as well. Where have you been? Do you know what time it is? I'm coming round. This film is in here mm. is mainly because Robert Aldrich, God knows how, but he did. He got into one of London's most legendary sort of under-the-counter night spots that you could only have known about if you were a part of a certain world, which mm. was the Gateways Club in, in Chelsea. Um, and I had a, some sequences in my book because one of the characters in my book, Jackie, is, is a lesbian and she takes, she's Jenny's best friend and she takes her one night to the Gateways. This amazing place where when you go down there, it looks like it's half full of original style gangsters and half full of Lana Turner style films. And you have to look again to realise they're all women. You do, I did. I did look again. this is such a brilliant secret world yeah and then amazing and i guess it's because he um robert aldrich made whatever happened to baby jane yeah. that he slept through the door i guess <laughs> but it's it's i mean it is an absolutely brilliant film as well for for many reasons isn't it and mm. and, and, and not least of all is beryl reed's portrayal of of the actress um june buckridge and she's she's in a long a long-running sort of heartwarming soap opera called Applehurst, which is a bit like The Archers, but it's a TV. It's thing, called, called it? the Midwife, isn't it? You know, it's it's a, yeah. It's it's a it's a very <laughs> it's a very meta film, isn't it? In in a sense, because you've got you know the, the the TV program within the film and calling her her character from the TV show. Yes, yes, yeah, she's Sister George. That's where that comes from. But far from being this this lovely, she's living in a Chelsea muse pad with a with her younger woman, Susanna York, who, who goes by the name of Childy. And they have a very disturbing relationship, a sort of sadomasochistic 
relationship, don't they? And um, yeah, well, I mean, what, what struck me when you when you just sort of settling into the film, you've got you've got the assault on two nuns in a black cab. <laughs> yes, as after a couple of gins. <laughs> yeah, and, which and, if a bloke was doing it, you'd be <gasps> yeah. And she's just laughing yeah. in the street like it's the funniest thing in the, and they're carting her off because she's just a drunk woman in 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 the society's eyes then and and then you've yes. got um I think the first two scenes with Susanna York she's in a pink and then a powder blue see through baby doll nighty that's her her first two scenes are just are just semi naked on the screen while while opposite Beryl Reed in this tweed two piece yes. Yes. And you can't even, you, you're kind of not sure at first if they are even in a relationship. You kind of think, well, they must be but it's because yeah. of the way they're talking. But to look at them, they don't look like they're in a relationship. No, it's a very Radcliffe Hall look that um, that Beryl Reed's got going on there. And mm. I think, you know, she she does that character so perfectly, the sort of masculine way she sits, the way she with her legs sort of mansplaining legs and the way she smokes her cigar and then how she also uses that cigar for for a disciplinary reasons, but how actually Childy manages to get one up on her even in that scene. That's all really, must have been so subversive for those days yeah. to even show you that. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. I mean, what do you, do you know much about it's kind of, what what how how controversial this was originally? Well, Actually, I don't. Um, I and it was a long-running stage play as yeah. well as being. I think it was adapted from the stage play onto the screen by Robert Aldrich. And I, I can just remember I used to work in this brilliant club, Jerry's Club, in, in Soho. I was a barmaid hmm. there for many years, and there was the original stage poster of it was always was up on the wall. Hmm. Um, um, yeah, from, and that was an early. So I think the actual play comes from the time period of Bad Penny and then this is a yeah it must have been I'm, I'm surprised I'm sorry I don't know more about it and it's I took okay. it well um, the, the thing that going back to the the the, the, the sort of iconic club scenes I thought mm. it was because we get such their long takes their their full sequences with hardly any breaks really and I love the fact that the house band are basically just playing a rocky number then a slow number then a rocky number. Yeah. So you kind of, you can have your kind of, cause it was like the, the and almost like accommodating the generations yeah. of lesbians that were there. So you had the older women, there goes the dog again. Um, you had the older women who, who like Beryl Reed and I can't, I can't, I don't even get the character's name, but there's another old woman in there that becomes part of the sequence when we're there. And it's, it's almost like, can you do the modern dancing? Like, as if that's, that's like sort of rite of passage, even in this secret society, you still, you're not, you there's, there's being in with the in crowd, then there's in with the in crowd, in crowd, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. But everybody know, can do a slow. Everyone can do a slowy. There's no, there's no, there's no exclusive. There's no exclusivity to that one. So the band are kind of playing fast and loose with what what's happening at the times, as well as crowd pleasing. Yeah, and I think that's all sort of the authentic band house band and the authentic people that were mm. there. So it's much later on when I wrote Jordan's book with her, she told me a story the only time where you know she went to the gateways club she was taken there by a friend of hers and she was dressed not even in a punk outfit in a sort of Marilyn style 50s dress with a little bolero top but they were all she said this was the most hostile place she'd been been to 
Um, and they, they were all trying to stamp on her feet and elbow her and because they thought she was a voyeur and she was intruding in their secret world, you know, sort of uh, in, in the language of beat girl, cruising for kicks and they, <laughs> they didn't. And she said that's the only place that she's really felt intimidated was in there wow. because she just what yeah, so, you know, you're not coming here as a tourist. This is, and quite rightly, I think they, they just, they, that was their world and they didn't want people to intrude on it because once, once normal people find out about anything good, it gets ruined, doesn't it? So it does, you yes. You can understand, you can understand, you know. Yeah, 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 totally. no, yeah, the, the uh, I mean, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of people in the gay village of Manchester which would uh, attest to that. Um yeah. And, and yeah. how, how it changes things. Um, well, look, we've done our five films. I'll just do a quick recap. We've uh, of, of five great films that influenced or had an influence on Bad Plenty Blues, your book. Uh, we've got Beat mm-hmm. Girl from 1960. We've got Pop Goes the Easel, Ken Russell's film about pop artists. L-Shaped Room, Seance on a Wet Afternoon. And the one we just finished talking about there, The Killing of Sister George. Um, Thank you very much for uh, indulging us with those films. It was fantastic. It was almost like I feel like I've twin tracked with uh, with Nick Triplo's films that led up to uh, led up yeah, to uh, I, Get Carter. I think they 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 they're playing as they're all part of the same. If you think of like what's going on in um, in, in in Beat Girl and and the the world that Pop Goes the Easel would, was 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 sort of looking at, I guess a bit or even L Shit Room, you can kind of go, yeah. Michael Caine's character would have been on the fringes of that yes. and would have been knocking on yeah. someone's door for money. Yeah, absolutely right. He would have been knocking on John Barry's door because <laughs> they were they were really good friends. And actually, I saw, had the brilliant fortune to see John Barry at the Albert Hall in being introduced by Michael Caine, who he told of one night when he'd been kicked out of his flat by his girlfriend or some something had gone wrong and he had to sleep on John Barry's in John Barry's spare bed and he went to sleep. John Barry went, just go upstairs and go to sleep. I'm in the middle of composing. And as he fell asleep, he was listening. John Barry, Barry was just composing the Thunderball suite at the time. So I, mean, I mean, that's, I mean, I was going to say, you've tapped on something there that looking back, even just with the films you've done, like there's, there's, there's a, there's a whole bloody podcast to be, I've not done yet about John Barry. I think, I think there's, yes. Because yeah, that, that certainly that early, great, si- that it? early sixties period. Yeah. He's, and he's in, yeah, because Brian Forbes, I think, gave him his first film soundtrack. So another reason to love Brian. Indeed, no, no, maybe maybe there's also a Brian Forbes thing to do as well. I think you're giving me plenty of ideas. Um, but yeah, John Barry for sure. Well, look, Bad Penny Blues is out on um, Stranger Tractor Press. What's what? What are you up to at the moment? What have you have you got anything in the pipeline? Anything coming out soon that you want to tell the world? I can't tell the world what I'm doing at the moment because it's top secret, but I am beavering away on something and and hopefully that will that will see the light in due course. Stranger Tractor are gonna republish my book Weirdo next, which is okay. um, which will be good. But that probably won't be till next year or the year after. But it'll be it'll be good when it happens. Okay. It'll be good to be back in print. So yeah, no, and thanks for indulging me because as you can see, this very much is an obsession. <laughs> I think it has to be. It just is me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Oh, thank you. That's been absolutely brilliant. Yeah.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.